0: This episode is sponsored by Robin. Do you think being an orthopedic surgeon has gotten more risky? It could be because of anything, from the economy to compliance concerns. If your answer is yes, you're not alone. According to a recent survey from Robin Healthcare, nearly three out of four doctors say practicing today is more risky than it was just five years ago. It's no wonder then that a majority of doctors also say they're documenting more in their medical notes to protect themselves against malpractice claims, Audits, and insurance denials. If that's what you're doing, you need to check out Robin. Robin does all the documentation for your patient visits and delivers notes and codes that help protect your practice. To discover how, visit robin.co/orthobullets. That's robin.co/orthobullets. This episode of the Orthobullets podcast will go over the topic of TKA revision from the recon section on orthobullets.com let's start this episode with a quick summary. TKA revision is most commonly performed to address aseptic loosening, fracture, instability, or infection associated with a prior TKA. Diagnosis and etiology of TKA failure can be determined by a combination of physical examination, labs, and radiographs. Treatment depends on etiology of failure, prior surgery, and patient activity demands. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to etiology, The most common causes of failure include aseptic component loosening, which make up approximately 39% of cases, septic failure, which make up approximately 27% of cases, ligament-slash-flexion instability, which make up approximately 8% of cases, periprosthetic fracture, which make up approximately 5% of cases, arthrofibrosis, which also makes up approximately 5% of cases, patellofemoral maltracking, abnormal joint line problems, patellar clunk, and metal hypersensitivity. So starting with aseptic component loosening, this is the most common reason for late revision that is defined as greater than two years from the primary procedure. Tibial loosening is more common than femoral. Femoral loosening is more difficult to detect due to the obscured view of the posterior femoral condyles where the lesions typically occur. Oblique radiographs may help identify this, and they can also be detected on serial radiographs. Osteolytic wear is most common in uncemented techniques. Osteolytic wear can be secondary to motion between the modular tibial insert and the metal tray. This is also known as backside wear. Moving on to septic failure, know that you must rule out infection prior to any revision. Infection is the most common failure mechanism for early revision, which is defined as less than two years from the primary procedure. Moving on to ligament-slash-flexion instability, know that MCL-slash-LCL incompetence can lead to laxity. Flexion instability can be secondary to PCL attenuation, incruciate retaining knees, unbalanced flexion gap, excessive posterior slope, undersized femoral component, and a femoral component placed in excessive extension. Moving on to periprosthetic fracture, this is most commonly found in the supracondylar femur region. The need for a revision is due to a combination of excessive comminution slash bone loss with the loose component. Patellofemoral maltracking is most commonly caused by component malpositioning. Finally, in terms of patellar clunk, this is secondary to a fibrotic scar tissue that clunks as the knee moves from flexion into extension and the patella jumps from the femoral notch. Arthroscopic treatments can be carried out to remove the fibrotic tissue. Moving on to presentation, it's important to obtain the original etiology and indications for total knee arthroplasty. It's also important to document preoperative range of motion and ambulatory status, history of infection, thrombophlebitis, recent falls, history of total hip arthroplasty, comorbidities, as well as the type of implant, and be sure to review prior records and imaging. As far as symptoms, the temporal course is crucial. In terms of pain, it's important to document persistent pain since the index procedure or new onset pain, which may indicate potential acute versus chronic infection. Also remember that pain with weight-bearing indicates a likely mechanical etiology. Other symptoms may include stiffness and instability, and it's important to understand the environment of instability, for example, on the stairs, level ground, and or rising from a chair. On physical exam in these patients, gait may be a stiff-legged gait or an inability to fully extend during the stance phase. Range of motion assessment should determine symptoms on passive or active range of motion. You should also document skin changes, presence of an effusion, as well as warmth, which may be infection versus complex regional pain syndrome. A ligamentous exam should be performed for laxity, and you should also evaluate the patellar tracking. As far as imaging, in terms of radiographs, serial AP and lateral radiographs should be obtained to provide the timeline of total knee arthroplasty. Weight-bearing radiographs can provide evaluation of any asymmetric wear. A skyline view can assess patellar tracking. Standing length views should be obtained to assess overall alignment. And an AP pelvis should be obtained to rule out any hip pathology. As far as computed tomography or CT scan, A femoral version study can aid in assessing component rotation when also compared to the femoral neck. You can also aid in assessing severity and location of bony defects. Moving on to bone scan, this can be positive for up to 2 years after primary total knee arthroplasty. A positive scan can be nonspecific but can indicate loosening, infection, or stress fracture. A negative scan rules out loosening. Also remember that diffuse uptake on bone scan can indicate complex regional pain syndrome. As far as studies to obtain, serum lab should include CBC, ESR, and CRP to rule out infection. And knee aspiration should also be done to rule out infection via cell count and culture. Now let's go over the surgical technique with respect to prosthesis selection. We'll go over unconstrained posterior cruciate retaining knees, unconstrained posterior cruciate substituting knees, constrained non-hinged knees, and constrained hinged knees with a rotating platform. So starting with unconstrained posterior cruciate retaining knees, this is indicated if the PCL is intact. Always have a PCL substituting implant available as it's difficult to evaluate the integrity of the PCL prior to surgery. An unconstrained posterior cruciate substituting knee is indicated if there's a PCL deficiency. A constrained non-hinged knee has a large central post which substitutes for MCL slash LCL function. This is indicated for varus slash valgus instability, specifically LCL attenuation or deficiency, MCL attenuation or deficiency, which is controversial because load may lead to breaking of the central post, and it's also indicated in the setting of a flexion gap laxity, which can be made stable with a tall post. Finally, moving on to a constrained hinged knee with a rotating platform, note that the tibial component is allowed to do internal-slash-external rotation within a yoke. This reduces rotational forces that would otherwise be on the prosthesis bone interface know that a constrained hinged knee with a rotating platform is indicated for global ligament deficiency. For example, LCL attenuation or deficiency, MCL attenuation or deficiency. However, again, deficiency of the MCL is controversial because load may lead to breaking of the central post. Other examples of global ligament deficiency includes flexion gap laxity with component mismatch, post-traumatic or multiply revised total knee replacements, hyperextension instability seen in polio, resection of the knee for tumor or infection, and a constrained hinge knee with a rotating platform is relatively indicated for Charcot arthropathy. Now let's go over the surgical technique with respect to general steps. So the goals for TKA revision is extraction of components with minimal bone loss and destruction, restoration of bone deficiencies, restoration of the joint line, balancing the knee ligaments, stable revision implants, and adequate soft tissue coverage. As far as general steps, surgical exposure should be extensile. When compared to the standard medial parapatellar approach for revision total knee arthroplasties, the oblique rectus snip approach shows no difference in outcomes. Tibial tubercle osteotomy allows for good exposure and is especially indicated if there's patella baja as it allows proximal translation of the tibial tubercle. As far as removal of implants, proceed with the tibial side first by establishing the tibial joint line. The tibial joint line should be 1.5 to 2 centimeters above the head of the fibula, Be sure to use x-ray of the contralateral knee to determine the exact distance. After the tibia joint line is established, proceed with the femoral side to match the tibia. Next, you will balance flexion extension gaps, balance medial and lateral gaps, and then address patellofemoral tracking. Be sure to keep the patellar thickness greater than 12 millimeters to avoid fracture. Now, let's go over the surgical technique with respect to bone defect reconstruction. And the classification to be aware of is the Anderson Orthopedic Research Institute or AORI classification, and this is divided into three types. Type 1 is described as minor bone defects with an intact metaphyseal bone that does not compromise stability. The treatment is cement fill or impaction allograft. Type 2 is divided into two subtypes, type 2a and type 2b. Type 2a is described as metaphyseal bone damage that involves one femoral condyle or tibial plateau. The treatment is cement fill, augments, and small bone graft. Type 2b is described as a metaphyseal bone damage that involves both femoral condyles or tibial plateaus. The treatment is cement fill, augments, and small bone graft. Finally, type 3 is described as massive bone loss comprising of a large portion of the condyle slash plateau and can involve the collateral ligament slash patellar tendon. The treatment is bulk allografts, custom implants, megaprosthesis, porous tantalum, metaphyseal sleeves, and a rotating hinge. Note that metaphyseal bone in total knee replacements is often severely deficient due to mechanical abrasion, osteolysis, extraction technique, or infection slash bone loss. Again, the classification to know is the Anderson Orthopedic Research Institute or AORI classification. However, note that it is not as commonly used as revision total arthroplasty. Reconstruction is addressed with long stems to promote load sharing to the femoral and tibial diaphysis. This is usually done with a long intramedullary stem. The advantages of press fit is that it has good scratch fit within the diaphysis and can help in obtaining correct alignment and there is no need for cement removal in the future. The disadvantages is typically there's no ingrowth, there's an increased risk of iatrogenic fracture and you cannot use in the femur with an excessive bow. The advantages of a cemented stem is that you can use it in scenarios of excessive femoral bow. You have the ability to deliver antibiotics and it's useful in severely osteopenic bone. But the disadvantages are that it increases the complexity of any future revision. In terms of cavity defect filling, know that in the setting of a cavitary defect of less than one centimeter, cement is adequate for small defects and is structurally better than allograft. In the setting of a cavitary defect of greater than one centimeter, the options include metaphyseal sleeves, trabecular metal cones, and structural allograft. The advantages of metaphyseal sleeves are the encouraging mid-to-long-term data. It's also efficient, simple, and can be used as cutting guides. It's instrumented and has a Morse taper interface with the implant. Disadvantages include that it's expensive, it's difficult to remove, it's specific to each implant manufacturer, and it's not useful for uncontained defects. Moving on to trabecular metal cones, advantages include that short-to-midterm data is encouraging, there are a variety of shapes sizes with custom shaping slash contouring that's possible. Trial specific instrumentation is available. It's compatible with several different implant companies and can be used for uncontained defects. Disadvantages include that it's expensive, it's difficult to remove, there's a cemented interface to the implant and can be an irritant to the soft tissues. Finally, moving on to structural allograft, advantages include custom shaping that's available, satisfactory survivorship in the mid to long term and there's potential biologic interface with the host. Disadvantages include that it's time-consuming, there's a disease transmission risk, there's long-term failure due to graft resorption, there's an infection risk, and it's technically demanding. Finally, let's end this review session talking about complications, and the ones to know include pain, stiffness, neurovascular problems, infection, skin necrosis, and extensor mechanism disruption. So as far as pain, pain scores are less favorable than primary total knee replacement, and activity-related pain can be expected for six months. In terms of neurovascular problems, the perineal nerve is subject to injury with the correction of valgus and flexion deformity. As far as infection, the rate is upwards of four to 7%, which is double the risk of primary total knee arthroplasty. Know that risk increases with MSIS grade C hosts. Moving on to skin necrosis, prior scars should be incorporated into the skin incision whenever possible. Blood supply to the anterior knee is medially based, so the lateral skin edge is more hypoxic. If there are multiple previous incisions, use the most lateral skin incision. You can use wound care, skin grafting, or muscle flap coverage, like the gastrocnemius, for full thickness defects. Finally, in terms of extensor mechanism disruption, you can use extensor mechanism allograft using an Achilles tendon bone block. However, residual lag due to attenuation is common. Know that extensor mechanism reconstruction with mesh may offer better midterm results in function and survivorship. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, a 67-year-old male returns to the operating room for stage two of his revision total knee arthroplasty for MRSA infection. All laboratory values indicate the infection has been cleared. What would be the best choice of cement for his revision arthroplasty? And the choices are one, plain cement without antibiotics since the infection has been cleared, 2. Cement hand-mixed with gentamicin. 3. Cement pre-mixed with gentamicin. 4. Cement hand-mixed with gentamicin and vancomycin. And 5. Cement pre-mixed with gentamicin and hand-mixed with vancomycin. The correct answer to this question is 5. Cement pre-mixed with gentamicin and hand-mixed with vancomycin. So this patient is undergoing a stage 2 revision for MRSA and antibiotic cement is indicated. The best coverage would be with premixed gentamicin cement with the addition of vancomycin for MRSA coverage. Due to the concern for deep periprosthetic infections, there has been a proposed theoretical advantage of using antibiotics in primary total knee arthroplasties. However, this benefit has not been demonstrated in the literature. The current recommendation by the FDA is plain bone cement without antibiotics added for primary total knee arthroplasties. For total knee arthroplasty, adding antibiotics to cement is only approved for the second stage of a two-stage revision. While often used in primary settings as well, this is technically off-label. Jerenik et al. reviewed the use of antibiotic cement for infection prophylaxis in total joint arthroplasty. They discussed that antibiotic-loaded bone cement is only indicated for those at high risk of infection with primary and revision total joint arthroplasties. Additionally, they discussed that the mechanical and elution properties of pre-mixed antibiotic cement are better than hand-mixed antibiotic cement. Want et al. looked at 2,293 patients that underwent primary total knee arthroplasty with a one-year follow-up. 10 patients were identified that had deep infections with no difference between plain cement and antibiotic-laden cement. They concluded that in the setting of a primary total knee arthroplasty, antibiotic-laden cement had no effect on prevention of deep infections. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, Answer 1, plain cement without antibiotics since the infection has been cleared is incorrect as this patient is undergoing a revision for infection and antibiotic cement would be indicated. Answer 2, cement hand-mixed with gentamicin and answer 3, cement premixed with gentamicin are both incorrect as antibiotic cement is indicated but vancomycin would offer better MRSA coverage. And finally, answer four, cement hand-mixed with gentamicin and vancomycin is incorrect, as vancomycin cement is indicated, but premix cement has been shown to have better elution and mechanical properties than hand-mixed versions. Moving on to the next question. A 75-year-old male requires revision total nearthroplasty 15 years after the index procedure. The operative report states that the surgeon used standard-sized, cemented, posterior cruciate sacrificing components with size 13 millimeter highly cross-linked polyethylene liner. What would be the most likely etiology for revision total knee arthroplasty in this patient? And the choices are 1. Infection, 2. Aseptic loosening, 3. Instability, 4. Periprosthetic fracture, and 5. Arthrofibrosis. The correct answer to this question is two, aseptic loosening. So aseptic loosening is considered the most common etiology for late revision total knee arthroplasty, which is defined as greater than 10 years. To quickly review, the most common causes for failed primary total knee arthroplasty are aseptic loosening, infection, instability, periprosthetic fracture, and arthrofibrosis. Infection is considered the most common failure mechanism for early revision, that is less than two years from the index procedure, and aseptic loosening was the most common reason for late revision, that is defined as greater than 10 years. The use of highly cross-linked polyethylene inserts has been shown to significantly reduce the complications from polyethylene wear. Sharkey et al. reviewed the etiology of total knee arthroplasty failure. In greater than 700 revision surgeries, they found the most common etiology for TKA failure was loosening at 39.9%. Infection was 27.4%, instability was 7.5%, periprosthetic fracture was 4.7%, and arthrofibrosis was 4.5%. Between two to ten years from the index arthroplasty, loosening of the prosthesis accounted for 51.4% of patients undergoing revision. Bosak et al. reviewed the etiology of revision TKA in the USA. Using national statistic data, 60,355 revision total knee arthroplasty procedures were performed in the United States between October 1, 2005, and December 31, 2006. Overall, the most common causes of revision total in the arthroplasty were infection at 25.2% and implant loosening at 16.1%. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, infection is incorrect, as infection is considered the most common failure mechanism for early revision, which is defined as less than 2 years from the index procedure. Late infection, defined as greater than 10 years, is less common. Answer 3, instability is incorrect, as stiffness, weakness, and pain are the most common complaints by patients in the immediate postoperative period after TKA. Rarely is there late-onset instability with posterior cruciate-sacrificing total knee arthroplasty. Answer 4, periprosthetic fracture is incorrect, as periprosthetic fractures occur at the prevalence of 3-5% to 5% after total knee arthroplasty. Finally, answer 5, arthrofibrosis is incorrect, as arthrofibrosis is a rare complication with TKA with an incidence of 0-3%. to 3%. And moving on to the final question. A 65-year-old female presents to your office for a second opinion regarding her right knee. One year ago, she had an uncomplicated right TKA. She reports that postoperatively, she gained her motion back very quickly and returned to normal activities. However, now that she has completely recovered, she reports difficulty getting up and down the stairs, a sense of instability without her knee actually giving way, and diffuse pain. She also endorses recurrent effusions since the time of surgery which have been aspirated and are bloody without evidence of infection. ESR and CRP are normal. On examination, she has significant anterior translation of the tibia on the femur when dangling her right leg off the table. Which of the following changes during revision surgery may help address the problem? And the choices are 1. Increasing tibial slope, 2. Upsizing the femoral component, 3. Resecting more posterior femur, 4. Resecting more proximal tibia, and 5. Adding augments to distalize the femoral component. The correct answer to this question is 2. Upsizing the femoral component. So this patient has signs and symptoms consistent with flexion instability. Revision surgery should consist of decreasing the flexion space, which can be achieved by upsizing the femoral component. Flexion instability following total knee arthroplasty is a common reason for dissatisfied patients following surgery. Patients typically report recurrent effusions since the time of surgery, most commonly bloody, difficulty negotiating stairs, a sense of instability without giving way, and diffuse pain. Flexion instability occurs when the flexion and extension gaps are not equal. There are four correctable variables in flexion instability. Axial alignment slash component malrotation, tibial slope, undersized femoral component, and a distalized femoral component, and these should be evaluated sequentially during revision surgery. Reduction of the tibial slope, upsizing the femoral component and resecting more distal femur, and upsizing the polyethylene are all ways in which flexion instability can be solved during revision surgery. Gonzalez et al. reviewed the evaluation and etiology of failed total knee arthroplasty. They report that patients with flexion instability commonly report a sense of instability without giving way, recurrent knee effusions, and posterior instability in flexion. They conclude that these issues may be caused by over-resection of the posterior femoral condyles, undersizing of the femoral component, and excessive tibial slope. Schroer et al. reviewed the etiology of total knee revisions in 2010 and 2011. They report instability as being the second leading cause of revision at 18.7%, behind aseptic loosening at 31.2%. They conclude that polyethylene wear is no longer a leading mode of failure as had been highlighted in earlier reports and that early failure mechanism currently are primarily surgeon dependent. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, increasing tibial slope, and answer 3, resecting more posterior femur, are both incorrect as increasing the tibial slope and resecting more posterior femur would increase the flexion space, not tighten it. Answer 4, resecting more proximal tibia is incorrect, as resecting more proximal tibia would change the flexion and extension spaces equally and would not serve to tighten the flexion space. And finally, answer 5, adding augments to distalize the femoral component is incorrect, as distalizing the femoral component with augments would tighten the extension space and have no change on the flexion space. That's all for this review about TKA revision. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.